0: Dan Malone, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really excited about this conversation. Um, welcome to Eyes Wide Open. Thanks for having me, Connor. Okay, first question. Where are you from? Where did you grow up?
1: I am born and raised in Dublin, Ireland. I've been here pretty much all my life um, in the kind of suburbs out by Dundrum. I went to primary school five minutes away from my house, secondary school 20 minutes from my house. Went to UCD um, both at undergraduate level and the masters, which is just again, thirty minutes down the road. So, yeah, I've kind of been centered around this locale um, all my life. Obviously, done a bit, of, good bit of travel and stuff like that. But yeah, for the most part, just been kind of based here in Ireland.
0: Why finance, Dan? What was the attraction? Was it was it an adolescent thing that developed in your childhood, or what? What was the attraction there? How did that develop?
1: Yeah, it's actually a weird one. Um, I kind of ended up in finance, uh, not by mistake, but definitely not by intention. Um, When I was finishing secondary school, like many, many people, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Uh, Guidance counselors weren't all too great in in steering me in the right direction. Um, For my leave and start I actually did no business or finance subjects. I did just like essay-based subjects like history and geography music and things like that um so when i was doing kind of the cao and deciding what courses to do i was looking at ucd commerce and i was like okay that seems like a very broad course you do tons of tons of different topics ranging from you know management to economics to finance to hr to accountancy so i was like surely there must be something in there that you know could interest me and it's something different because i'd never done any of those subjects before so i just kind of put it down i actually put down Law and business and law first because I was more kind of into the as I said essay essay based kind of styled subjects at the time. Didn't end up getting enough points for them in the leaving, but got my third choice, which was the bachelor of commerce in in UCD. Um, so yeah, did that for four years. When you're in kind of third year in that course, you specialize, and I quickly fell in love with finance, tax, and accountancy, which is funny because I hated maths in the leaven sir. I did like ordinary level maths. Um, So it was really interesting to me how, you know, at secondary school level, I didn't really click with like algebra and things like that. But when numerics were presented in a more financial context and a more practical based context, it really clicked with me. Um, mm. So yeah, that's, I suppose that's my first academic introduction to finance. I then went on and did a master's in accountancy in the UCD Smurfit school, and eventually ended up with PricewaterhouseCoopers, where I worked for four years in the asset and wealth management division. So pretty much looking at auditing the financial statements of some of the biggest investment funds in the world. Um, You know, the names like Vanguard and BlackRock, Mm. Um, they're kind of ETFs and mutual funds. So I got exposure to pretty much every type of investment there is that kind of deepened my love of investments even more. And yeah, I just I've I've had a good bit of experience from both an academic and practical standpoint over the past few years in finance.
0: Uh, You're clearly very knowledgeable in the subject. You're clearly an expert in personal finance so what what i want to talk today is just basic questions right give people an understanding of the terminology and get some advice um what are some of the most important things people should know about personal finances
1: yeah i mean for me i think one of the most important things and i always say this is is the relationship with money um you know i always tell people you have to respect money but be indifferent towards it and what i mean by that is when you respect money you understand that money is a tool and like all all other tools if it's used correctly it can allow you to achieve some really great things but at at the same time there is a need to be indifferent towards your money i feel like a lot of people have an emotional attachment to the cash that they possess and for good reason, because a lot of people are in positions where they don't have an awful lot of it. Um, But where you do kind of have a bit of excess cash to play with, or you're not in the worst financial situation imaginable, detaching yourself from your cash and not being emotionally attached to it is really important because that will allow you to go and do things with your money that are necessary to grow, to achieve financial independence Because if if we're all of the mindset where we're like, oh, I have my cash, I don't want to lose, I want to keep it all in the bank, Mm. it's never going to grow. You're going to stay in the same kind of stagnant position forever. Um, So really understanding money's potential and allowing yourself mentally to do things with your money is really important. Um, I think the number one most important thing to understand in finance or personal finance in general is that your money can definitely do more for you. It's not as hard as people make it out to be. It's just about a bit of common basic level understanding. Um, and I think a lot of people don't have that basic understanding and that's what prevents people from doing more with their money. Personal finance is a really difficult topic because it's personal as the name suggests and there's lots of different nuances and different you know, situations that people can find themselves in and that makes it hard to give general advice because... A lot of the times things I'll hear is, okay, well, you said this in your video, but I'm actually in this position with this medical expense and this car situation and this living situation. And it's like, yeah, 100% sympathize with that. So I kind of come from like the general macro perspective of like where you could get to. But a lot of the time people are going to have to take steps in their own individual lives to slowly improve their financial position to get to a point where they can start doing the things that will benefit them in the long term. So yeah it's it's a bit of a minefield but it's really it's a really interesting subject.
0: You think people when they are emotionally attached it it kind of inhibits their appetite for risk.
1: Absolutely, absolutely and I think especially in Ireland we have I suppose a a large misunderstanding of the concept of risk. I think a lot of people were burned a lot of people's parents were burned in the financial crisis. Um, you know, back in 08-09, I think there's an inherent distrust in the financial system within Irish people in particular, but a, around Europe as well. Um, and because of that, even outside of the, you know, the 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 common risks of just investment risk as a whole, that that level of distrust in the system just makes it less likely for people to um get involved in the financial markets, and it makes them more emotional about that particular decision. When in reality, you know, and we can talk more about this as, as we go on, but if anything, the biggest risk is doing nothing. There's a lot of data that suggests that, you know, the biggest risk you're taking with your money is just leaving it all in the bank. And so much research and data over the years has shown that by investing sensibly, you're going to do very well.
0: And do you think leaving money in the bank right I mean, obviously, it will be inflation will have a negative impact. Is that the primary concern with leaving money in the bank? Or is it the the interest return, which is nothing? I mean, that's basically it, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, so look, inflation, again, for those who are listening and don't really understand the concept, essentially every year things get more expensive. The things that you buy in your day-to-day life, goods and services get more expensive. The European Central Bank has estimated that over the long-term, the inflation rate, long-term average inflation rate will be about 2%. So based on that, you can assume that over the long-term, everything that you buy on average will become 2% more expensive each year. So the concept of inflation is if you have money that is just sitting in a bank account, if that money is not growing by at least 2% a year, you are technically becoming poor because your money can buy you less each and every year um, as it goes on. So yeah, by leaving your money in a bank account, inflation just wears away at it because it's getting very little return, as you suggested. So uh, there's a lot of media attention at the moment about Irish banks and how they're not passing on the higher deposit interest rates that have been set by the European Central Bank to customers. Um, There are a couple of very good reasons why that is, but that's kind of a side aside from the matter. um. So there isn't a lot of return to be had within Irish banks. So what that means is Irish investors and as Irish consumers as a whole need to look elsewhere for return. And where that's going to be found is either investing in the stock market through brokerage platforms or doing the best possible thing you can do is investing through your pension. um and so that that really is kind of like the only option that that people have. So yeah, the the biggest risk of keeping money in the bank is that inflation and the fact that you're getting minimal returns.
0: Um what are some of the most common mistakes? And I think we've touched on some of them there already, but we just clarify again. What are mm-hmm. the most common mistakes people make when it comes to personal finances? Yeah. So for me People who have the best intentions
1: in the world, when they start to take an interest in their personal finances, they don't do adequate research and they start putting money in places where they shouldn't. And this was completely evident during 2020 and 2021 when everything was going crazy in the stock market, and the crypto market, people got taken in by hype. So that's one of the biggest mistakes you can make. If you are going to take an active interest in your finances and you're going to start investing and trying to better yourself, do not get sucked in by the crowd. You need to go and do your own research. You need to make sure who you're listening to is credible. You need to listen to multiple people and get external advice if you need it. Um, But just make sure you are being sensible and you are making decisions that suit your own personal financial situation. Because what I find is, and we said this at the beginning, personal finance is personal. So if you try to go and copy what everyone else is doing, that, not, that might not be suitable to your personal situation. So that's the first mistake I would say is, is getting caught up in the hype and not doing research. The second biggest mistake, and I think I mentioned earlier as well, is just doing nothing. Um, if you kind of accept that, okay, this is my situation, this is going to be me for life, I this, this investing thing isn't for me, it's too complicated, I don't understand it, I'm just going to leave everything in the bank or the credit union. If you have that mindset, you're just going to be in the same kind of financial position for life. You're not going to be able to achieve enough return to effectively live a good retirement in the future. Um, and that goes for both your pension investments and your your personal investments as well. So doing nothing is another another big mistake. Um, and if I was to, if I was to think about a third mistake, it would be not being consistent. So this is another thing I, I always see is that people tend to take a very short-term intense interest in their personal finances like yeah we're going to do this we're going to invest pension it's all going we're going to be saving money um, less takeaways happy days we're we're doing well and they'll do that for like a year or two mm. and then like anything they'll kind of just like slowly start to like get worse and worse with their with their i suppose their consistency and their uh, their discipline on that on that front and all of a sudden, you have less money going into the investments, more money being spent on takeaways and things that they probably don't need. And as they start to get salary increases as well, there's not enough money going into the pension. So, yeah, consistency there would be my my third kind of mistake or being inconsistent would be the mistake.
0: If people have cash and savings post-COVID, we, we've read a lot about this. So there's a big pile of cash sitting in the bank. We know that's not good. Um where can they find a reasonable return and what is a reasonable return to expect?
1: Yeah. So the ideal situation, and we will because you, you said effectively cash savings in a bank account. So we're not talking about pensions here really, but and we'll come back to it. But the ideal situation is that we start the investing journey before the cash ever hits your bank account. So we want to start in the pension. But for now, I'll talk about the, the question you said of the individual who has cash in the bank account they've already gotten out of their salary it's sitting there so for me and i preach this on my channel the whole time is it's just a long-term investing mentality and um, is what you need to have right and when we talk about return we're looking for adequate not sensational returns okay hmm. um i think a lot of people when they start investing it's weird they go from getting pretty much nothing in the bank to wanting 10, 15, 20% in the stock market or crypto market uh, which is just completely bonkers. So there is a very sensible middle ground that we can get to um based on historical data and research reports. Um and we can we can effectively craft an investing strategy that can get you good long-term average average returns. So the best way to do that is to invest in what are called low-cost index funds. Um, so there, there are two parts to that, right? So we'll start with obviously the what the product is, right? So an index fund is effectively an investment product that you purchase. Um, the, the type of index fund that we look at is exchange traded funds. It's a lot of terminologies here, but effectively, it's just an investment product that is traded on the stock market. So you buy buy and sell shares in this particular product on the stock market, which you can access using one of the many brokerage platforms that operate here in Ireland. And when you buy a share, that's just one individual share in a particular index fund, each in the, each individual index fund will give you exposure. Um, so it will expose your money to a wide variety of different investments. So the difference between investing in an index fund and investing in an individual company stock like Apple is that with, with the stock like Apple, you're just getting exposure to Apple. Mm. Whereas if you invest in the index fund and you buy one share in the index fund, you're getting exposure to what what might be hundreds, if not thousands of of different companies. Um, So one of the most popular index funds in the world is the S&P 500 index fund. So the S&P 500 index itself is a measurement tool that's used to measure the stock performance of the top 500 companies in the US, right? So an an S&P 500 index fund is effectively an investment product that gives you exposure to all of those top 500 companies through one single investment, right? So what are the benefits of doing that? Well, number one, it's highly diversified. You're not putting your money into one single stock. Your money is being spread out across 500 different stocks, right? That's obviously very beneficial. It's also low time investment. What do I mean by that? Well, if you want to invest in individual companies, you have to do the necessary research to ensure that that company is a good investment. So you need to look at their financial statements, you need to look at their projections for the future, you need to look at analyst commentary, you need to do a lot of work to make sure that the company that you're buying is a suitable investment for you and it's a good price. With index funds, you don't have to do that. Because your investment is spread out over so many companies, it's diversified. So you're diversifying your risk and therefore there's just less research needed. You don't necessarily need to research each individual company within the index fund because your risk is spread out. So it makes it very, very beginner friendly because that's what people want, right? Mm-hmm. 99% of the population who do want to get involved in investing, they don't want to be spending their Fridays and Saturdays looking up research, research reports and doing all this analysis. They don't want to do it because they won't do that consistently. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do that. And I like finance, right? Um so that'll be the second reason to do that. And then the third best thing about index funds, is that they're low cost. So what do I mean by low cost? Well, every investment fund, every investment product that isn't a company stock comes with a fee, an annual fee for owning that product, an annual fee that you pay to the investment provider for creating that product, right? So we are very lucky to be living in a day and age where a lot of these index fund providers are competing with each other on cost in in almost a race to the bottom. So you can access really, really cheap um, index funds on the stock market. And the reason why that's beneficial is because the higher the cost that you pay to own your index fund each year, the lower your return will be. So it's in your best interest to get a low cost index fund. Okay. So that's that's where I would start. And I I, I do accept that there's, there's a lot in there. Um, and there's a lot of terminologies. I find people struggle with the terminologies quite a bit, but at its most basic level, An index fund is just a single investment that you make that allows you to have exposure to many different investments at once. It's Mm. highly diversified, it's low cost, and it's low time investment.
0: What I'm hearing is essentially it's a bundle of stocks. Correct. Right. Um, Would the brokerage or the firm that's handling the, 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 the fund advisor that has that fund, would they move their capital around each stock depending on what's happening in the market. Like, so say you had X amount of shares in Apple. Apple might drop next week. They'll move their shares to IBM. Is that what's happening?
1: So essentially with the the index funds, right? So it's all mirroring the actual stock market index. So let's go back to the S&P 500 to to answer your question. Hmm. So these are what are known as passive funds, right? So the actual investment managers who are running the fund they are not making active decisions about how much of each stock they should buy and hold, okay? Mm-hmm. So how are they making the decisions? They're making their decisions based on the actual underlying index itself. So as we said, the S&P 500 index is a measurement tool that measures the top 500 companies in the US. So what does that mean? Well, every stock within the S&P 500 is given a weighting, okay? So depending on how valuable the company is, one individual company is in, in the top 500 relative to the total that will give it, give it, give it its weight. Right. So as an right. example, Apple, you know, has a, as a market cap of a couple of trillion. Mm-hmm. And I know that relative to the S and P 500 to so the rest, to the actual total value of that, of that index, it's weighting is about five or 6% or something like that. So in your index fund, the value of your Apple holding, your your Apple exposure will be in the region of 5 to 6%. Now, if Apple completely goes haywire tomorrow and loses half its value, well, then all of a sudden your exposure might drop to about 3% because the index itself will rebalance based on the value of the stocks. And Mm -hmm. then the index fund will copy what's happening in the index. So the investment manager isn't actually making any active decisions themselves. They're just copying the measurement tool.
0: Okay, very interesting. Um it sounds, I mean, is anything safe? It sounds a relatively safe place to park mm. cash. Right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So when we talk about safety, right, it's very it's very important to 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 note that we're we're talking about equities here, so stocks. Um mm. and your the level of safety that you get really depends on your investment horizon. So how long that you're actually going to be invested for. Um, I believe the statistic is that there's never been a single 14 year period since the inception of the S&P 500 where it's lost money. So that can pretty much be taken to mean that if you have an investment horizon of between 10 to 15 years, at a bare minimum, you're not going to lose money. Hmm. Now that's obviously not guaranteed because, you know, um, historical data is not indicative of future results. But... It's a fairly good indication that long-term investing works, um, and we know that you know over most time periods, over most five to ten year to fifteen-year time periods, the S and P five hundred does a lot better than just break even, right? And it, it does it does a lot better than inflation as well, mm. which again is is a, is at that two percent. Um, but there are there are much more it's important to clarify there's much more index funds beyond just the S&P 500 you know you can get index funds that track european companies you can get index funds that track emerging market companies you can get index funds that encapsulate the in total the total all world uh, stock market um so the most important thing for me is understanding that if you are going to do this you need to be committed for a minimum of 5 years minimum um ideally you know, 10, 15 and beyond. Mm. The thing that people fail to kind of realize is that the best way to do this is almost make it part of your lifestyle. So you're committing to being an investor for life. Um, It's not like, okay, I'm going to invest for approximately seven years and six months, and then I'm going to pull out my capital. You need to say, okay, I'm going to start this now and I'm going to just keep going. I'm just going to keep going. And even throughout retirement, you keep going, you keep making your investments, you stay invested for the long term because that's the best way to achieve um, returns because safety, there's there's no such thing as safety, right? There's there's risk that you take on, um, but it's just appropriately understanding and managing those risks is well important.
0: Well, yeah, absolutely. There is a huge amount of disruption in the tech space in particular. People, I'm sure you're aware of 200,000 or something people were laid off. In Q1 and Q2 of this year, so some people might be nervous about depositing cash and in long-term investments with no access to it in an emergency situation. What would your perspective be there about an emergency situation?
1: Well, it, the first thing to say is that you, you you do have access to it. I mean, you can all, you can always sell your investments mm-hmm. um, and withdraw the cash. The, the The downside of doing that is you might be in a loss-making scenario with with your investments when you need to sell. Um, Mm. And no one wants to be in that position where you've made an investment, you have a short-term need for cash, and now you need to sell your investment and realize a loss. No one wants to do that. So um, that's why we have an emergency fund, right? So emergency fund is effectively a stockpile of cash that you keep uh, um, in an easy-access bank account that will effectively cover your rainy-day expenses um now the classic, you know, financial advisor rule of how much you should have um is you know X months worth of of living expenses. Um I don't really like you know living by any sort of predetermined rules because I feel like everyone kinda knows themselves how much they need to have in the bank to feel comfortable and it's a very personal decision. Mm-hmm. Um but as you said, we're kind of living in in like kind of unstable times. So people might want to have more in their emergency fund now in case their job is at risk and they have, you know, if you lose your job, the, the the financial commitments don't stop with regards to mortgage payments and utilities and rental costs and stuff like that. So there's there's an absolutely, you know, very reasonable and rational uh, argument made for having the emergency fund. And I think it's very important. Um, but what's also equally important is not over-allocating to cash because mm. the more cash you have, we go back to that conversation then again about, wasted potential, inflation, not getting enough return on your money. So it's a delicate balance between stockpiling enough to make sure that you feel comfortable and that you can sleep at night, mm. but not stockpiling too much that you are leaving kind of returns on the table.
0: Say, for example, you have, okay, so just two types of investors. You've got one person who's just entered the market. Who's Maybe they've just graduated from college. They want to invest 100 or 500 euros. Then you have somebody Perhaps in their thirties they have ten, fifteen, twenty thousand and they're looking for a home for that. What kind of different strategies would you deploy there? Let's talk about the one hundred, two hundred, the the smallest um, amount possible. Where would you where would you would you recommend for the the, the hundred, two hundred euro guy or girl?
1: Yeah. So that I think that's a great position to be in. And it's something, you know, I, I only started investing myself when I was 24 right and i had been exposed to the finance since i was 18 so it kind of shows you the disconnect between the academic side of finance and the actual practical um so it sounds like you're talking about like you know someone who might be a student or mm. just has a part-time job and has a bit of spare cash coming their way um again i would be encouraging them encouraging them to get started with index fund investing as soon as possible if not for just the sake of getting used to their money changing in value that's a really psychological hurdle to overcome understanding Mm. that your money goes up and down on a daily basis. Mm. Um, It wouldn't necessarily be for like, you know, if you invest now, you're going to be worth X million in a couple of years, nothing like that. Um, You're obviously, you know, you need to have money to make money, Um, but it's, it's good to start early in terms of actually learning how this stuff works so that when you do have access to more cash in the future and you start getting into your thirties and your higher paying jobs and more disposable income, you're saying to yourself, oh, okay, I started doing this 10 years ago with a small bit of money when I was a student. Now I have real money to play with and I can actually go and, and do something meaningful. Um but also let's not underestimate the power of starting early in compound interest because you know starting early with small amounts can, can lead into big big amounts in the future. Hmm. Um, for the second person who who is saving for the home you know, what I always say is it's super important to define your life goals, right? Um, if buying if buying a home is what is important to you, it's what it's 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 necessary for the next step of progression in your life, then that is what you should do. Um it's very, very difficult to juggle all of these various things in our lives, uh, while trying to be optimal with investing, right? You're never gonna be fully optimal with investing unless you're allocating, you know pretty much the majority of your cash to it. And that's not possible for a lot of people. So as much as I preach that investing is a fantastic thing, which it is, you obviously have to live your life and, and do the things that are important to you and, and buy the house if that's important to you and things like that. Um, But when you are buying the house, again, it's important to just be very kind of um, intentional with your cash, right? So, buying a house that's within your affordable range um, and not overspending for the sake of it, doing your best to lock in good interest rates, which is <laughs> easier said than done these days, um, because all of these things will have ramifications for your monthly finances going forward for the next 20, 25 years. And monthly ramifications for finances means less money available for investing. So if you are going to spend financial outlay today, it's important to... Re- To kind of think about, okay, well, how can I do this in the most efficient way possible so that in the future when I do have time and capacity to invest again, I'm giving myself the best chance possible. Um, So there are a few things to consider there.
0: So we're still saying with small money investors, 100 to 500 years, dip your toe in the index fund space, Mm. perhaps get into an app, but also for long-term investors with 10, 15, 20, 50,000, and now have more money. You would also be looking at, like well, you'd be looking at pensions, but also you would be recommending or seriously looking at index funds as well, right?
1: For absolutely everyone. Um, index funds is the most suitable investment for 99% of the population, um, whether they know it or not, or they accept it or not. It, it's just, it's all the data is there. People do not have the time nor will to be active investors picking stocks or trading cryptos. It never works out. Um,
0: so Yeah okay um okay you touched on it there what are your thoughts on buying and buying a house as an investment strategy or a second property is high, house buying a sound financial investment
1: so actually, i actually i recently i recently touched on this um on the channel and it is a bit of a a contentious topic because a lot of people especially in ireland feel quite passionate about home ownership we are our mm. are country of uh of homeowners um it's, it's interesting as well because when you compare it to the say germany where home ownership is really low it's just a completely different culture and and the the answers to that question are, <laughs> will vary significantly depending on what uh what what country you're in um as i said to you there look i think if we just ignore ho- home ownership as being an investment for a second which it is a lot of people are gonna buy a house regardless of price valuation uh all sorts of things they will go through you know uh, <laughs> rain wind and hail to kind of to kind of get that house uh purchased for themselves because it's just something that's on the the irish bucket list mm. um but i do think there is a case to be made um for people to kind of take a step back and really assess whether home ownership is for them um i think it's it's not something that we commonly talk about in Ireland, the idea of not buying a home. Um, but I do think it's a valid argument because buying a home comes with the largest financial commitments that you'll ever have in your lifetime. Um, society has normalized the use of debt to purchase assets in the form of a mortgage. Um, you know, if you use that level of of debt to purchase any other kind of investment, you would be seen as a madman. Um Fortunately, the housing market tends to be a lot more stable than financial markets, but not always, as we've seen in the past. Um, but yeah, I think with home ownership comes a lot of financial responsibility in the form of down payments. Saving for a down payment takes away from your capacity to invest in the present, because mm. depending on your salary, it might take you a long time to, to save up. Um, obviously, if you lock in a, a not so favorable interest rate, be a fixer var- variable, that's going to increase your monthly outgoing interest payments, which again, will limit the amount of money you can allocate towards your investments. So there are a lot of financial downsides associated with um, property investment. And the other thing that pretty much no one considers is that property does have a a fundamental value. It can be overvalued. um, And normally that's expressed as the value of of rental payments in your area uh, over the, the actual property purchase price so that's called the rental yield of the property so we saw it in 06 07 rental yields got very very low which is an indication of an overvalued property market um, we're seeing similar ish things happen now not quite on the same same scale mm. um, but it's important to remember that property prices don't always go up okay you can end up in negative equity and because you're using debt to purchase your home often for 90 percent of the value of the home any losses that you incur are going to be magnified because of the use of debt. Um, so, yeah, I would say, look, if it's if if it's what you need for the progression of your life, go for it, you do you. Um, but if you're someone who is in between and you're not really sure whether homeownership is for you and you're seeing all your friends go and do it, I would say that there is a lot to be said for renting, not necessarily here. You could go mm-hmm. to a different country and, and rent everywhere. You do have your freedom. Um, and there are a lot of financial benefits of doing so.
0: The Irish cultural experience and that, that home ownership thing is linked to security, right? In Germany, and France, United States, they didn't have historically mm-hmm. that security issue. I mean, we, we had people thrown off the land here, you know, going back hundreds of years. And, and, and that's what it is psychologically. But I, I totally agree. Um, consider it carefully. Um, second and third property investments right? Apartments on the continent, um, second homes down the country, rental properties. Um, what's your perspective there? Yeah. I, and again, I
1: think this is a, a, a detachment from, from the reality of what those things are. Uh, again, I think there's something quite sexy about owning a lot of properties and having very a property, sexy, very sexy, yeah. having a property prof- portfolio. Yeah. Um, but that, that doesn't escape it from being an investment. And because it's an investment, it mm. has fundamental rules like stocks. Um, and so just because you're a property investor with four or five properties under your belt, that does not mean you're a successful investor. That mm. could mean that you are highly leveraged. You've taken on a lot of debt to purchase those properties and you're taking on a lot of risk. Um, it also means that you're not diversified because you know, all of your capital is in two or three single properties. All of your money is in two or three properties. Um, if you compare that to the stock market where you can invest in 500, to parts of 1,000 companies using one single investment product, it's it's a no-brainer in terms of diversification. And the actual returns in the property market are seldom better than what can be achieved in in the stock market as well. You know, I think you actually, Mm. you actually asked earlier, I forgot to answer it, about what's a reasonable return Mm. um, in the stock market. And we know based on historical data that in the region of 8% before taxes and inflation is what you can expect in the S&P 500. So after taxes and inflation, you're looking in the region of five to five and a half percent. You'll be hard pressed getting that these days as a property investor and, you know, it's no secret that landlords are leaving the Irish market as well. and That's mm. that, that's for very good reason. Um, there's <laughs> unfavorable tax treatments um, of landlords. Property prices are high. Rental mm. pressure zones. Um, and that's before you consider all the headache associated with maintenance and all the things you have to do with dealing with landlords and property management agencies. So being a property investor isn't just purchasing property and riding the wave and going off to Spain and having a great time. There is a lot more to it than being, say, an index fund investor. And you're taking on all that additional work for arguably inferior returns and a lot more stress. So my advice would be don't get sucked into the, just the idea and glamour of being a property investor. Actually mm. think about, okay, is this a, a fundamentally strong investment?
0: Um. Okay, pensions. We know pensions are a, good, a great idea. Um, particularly over the long term. There is a stipulation in Irish law. I don't know if this is the same in the United States or or Europe, but you can draw down 25% of your pension at 50 years of age, and that's tax-free, right? Is that a good idea? Interesting
1: question. And this is potentially one of my favorite topics in the pension debate. So what you're referring to there is the 25% tax free lump sum so when you reach retirement age you can take 25% um of your pension as a tax free lump sum up to a up to a maximum limit mm. um the question is whether or not you should take your maximum tax free lump sum um you can take it at 50 lot... then you can take you can take it at 50 um for certain certain pension products but 60 will be most common Um, and it really depends on what pensions you have so it's going to be 50 or 60 um again depending on the pension product so whether or not you should take the full lump sum uh is a bit of a heated debate because yes it's tax-free it's tax-free money happy days you're getting a big lump sum you can go off on the cruise in retirement and do all those great things but the the more boring Uh, potentially more financially sensible argument is to not take the full tax freedom sum so why would you do that well if you think about it by taking your full tax freedom sum what are you doing yes you're getting cash into your pocket but you're actually taking your money taking a big chunk of money out of your investments right so now you're taking it from the investment world where it's Mm. growing at x percent per year potentially protecting yourself against inflation and you're putting it back into bank account world okay so you might not have a need for that. Now it again, it totally depends on the financial position of the person who is actually taking the lump sum. But let's say you have a, a decent chunk of savings, you you were on a high paid salary before you retired, you're doing quite well financially. I wouldn't say there's a big, big reason for you to be taking that full lump sum because you're probably just gonna spend it on stuff that you don't really need. You might have some things lined up, some life things Sports you want to achieve. Yeah, Honey. all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, all got, yeah, nonsense, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so th- the question I'd be asking is, well, could that be more productive being left in the investment fund and having mm-hmm. more money in there and continuing to grow over time? Um, so definitely pros and cons, it depends on the person, but for me anyway, I would like to think that when I get to that position, I'll be leaving not all, I'll obviously take some of it out depending on what I want to do. Um,
0: but yeah, I'll definitely be leaving a good chunk in there to be invested. Um, Okay, many people working in the U.S. corporate tech space receive equity grants. Normally receive them once a year, sometimes twice a year, depending on what's happening. Mm-hmm. Some people cash in immediately. Some people might hold. Is there a strategy there or some advice you could offer um, for people that to, to maximize those kind of windfalls that they receive and, and what to do with them?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, I, I suppose the, the the conversation about RSUs or restricted stock units is actually similar to property in a sense because it's it's quite a sexy topic. It's like, oh, my employer has given me, you know, stock options and RSUs and on top of my salary. And that's usually indicative of what we would go- call these days a good compensation package. Mm. Um, but if we actually just take a step back and think about what they are, it's just stock in a single entity. So it's not diversified. Mm you're heavily uh, you're heavily all in with one particular company. Mm. Um, a company that you may not, even though you work for them, you may not understand the financial position of that company. You likely haven't done the due diligence that you would do if you were investing in that company as an outsider. So you're just taking it for granted that it's a good investment. Um, so there are lots of things to consider here that yes, just because you have, stock in this particular company that doesn't necessarily make it a good investment. And it could be in your best interest to get out ASAP and allocate that cash to a more
0: An productive fund.
1: use elsewhere. Yeah. yeah. Um. So a lot of this again, comes down to kind of the taxation of RSUs. So we're all aware of the, the vesting period. So your, your RSUs vest over a certain period of time might be three years or four years, um, at the vesting date, you'll pay, you know, USC, PSI, POA tax, uh, and that will be deducted by your employer. And then, if your shares appreciate in value between the vesting date and the date that you eventually sell, you'll be liable as capital gains tax, um, on that amount, on that on that portion of gain as well. Um, but yes, yeah, so like I, w- I'd be saying, you know, if you do have a significant portion of RSUs that are vesting. The same principle applies you know you don't want to have too much of your capital allocated in one place because it's not diversified and it's risky and you have to ask yourself you know do i really understand the company that i'm invested in do i understand the financials um you know there's a lot of factors to consider there and i'd be kind of saying it's probably worth my while worth my while just taking this out and and just putting it into an index fund because again then i don't have to think about it and i know that if i hold this for 10 15 years i'm probably gonna do well whereas with this individual company a lot of these guys are startups as well and early stage companies so you don't really know what way it's gonna go um sure you could definitely make some big big wins but again that's getting more into the the gambling side of our mentalities Mm -hmm. and less about the actual rational financial decision making
0: um are there Tax-efficient and compliant, tax-compliant ways to minimize CGT, capital gains tax, right? Is... There,
1: yeah, there are, there are. Um, I suppose the, the most obvious one is to don't sell. <laughs> it's not necessarily one that people like hearing, but it's one that they need to be reminded of as well.
0: But they're um, going to have to sell at some point, Dan, you know, to to realize that. They will
1: indeed, they will indeed. But one of the most surefire ways to eat into your returns, and again, this is just a quick point that I'm making about day trading, Mm. is to constantly be buying and selling because every time you sell, every time you realize that gain, you're locking in a CGT liability. Yes, you do have your annual exemption and we'll talk about that now in a second. Um, But again, this is just another kind of... uh, tick mark for long-term investing because you want to minimize the amount that you're selling to minimize the amount of CGT that you're playing, paying over the long-term to affect compound mm-hmm. interest. Um, the other point that touched on there was the was the annual exemption um, of 1,270 euros. So each year, um, as an Irish tax resident um, investor, you are entitled to effectively have the first 1,270 euro worth of capital gains that you realize that you sell um, to be not taxable. It's not a significant portion, um, but it is, you know, it's it's something. It's something that can definitely you know reduce your reduce your liabilities. So that can be used as well. Mm. Um, th- but the best way to to avoid any sort of investment tax is again to invest in a pension because, you know, pension investments are totally exempt from income tax and capital gains tax within the fund. Um, and whenever, the Irish financial pension system cops on and we have actual competitive um, players in the space that can offer us highly accessible pensions where we can control down to the minute investment what we're investing in at a low cost, it will be fantastic to see what happens there because I'd love to see a world where I have a pension account and I have whatever stocks and ETFs that I want to invest in Mm -hmm. and I can buy and sell within that account all tax-free. Because the tax code says that pension investments accrue investment income tax free, and they can be sold at a gain tax free as well. So, um, again, that's that's that, in my opinion, is the best way to to avoid any sort of investment tax.
0: So, and just to clarify, the pension age in Ireland is now sixty seven. When that mid pension matures, um, it's not subject to any tax, right? So, am I correct in assuming that?
1: So, when you, so this is when you're drawing down your pension, right? When you're drawing
0: down your pension, yeah.
1: Yeah. So, as we said, the first 25% can be taken as a tax free lump sum. What Mm -hmm. happens then is you're typically given the choice between transferring the value of your pension to what's known as an ARF or an approved retirement fund, Mm. or taking the value of your pension and purchasing an annuity with the life company. So, what are those two options? So, the ARF option is effectively just an extension of what you've been doing throughout your working life. You effectively move it from this pre-retirement fund to this post-retirement fund. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing, um, similar tax rules apply. There's no income tax or capital gains tax while the investments are in there. But you are obligated under tax law to withdraw at least 4% of your fund per year. Um, that eventually goes up to 5%. When you withdraw that value, the actual fund operator will operate tax at source. So you do pay tax when you actually draw it down. Okay. But again, you're only required to take four to 5% out a year. The benefit of the ARF is that your, your, your money stays invested and you have control over what it's invested in for retirement. Um, That can be, you know, whatever you deem fit. So it can still grow and can still protect you from inflation. And the benefit of an ARF is that it can pass to your family um, in the event of your death. So, you know, if you if you happen to die in in the early years of retirement, your spouse or your children can effectively take an inheritance of your ARF. same, it can... might
0: hasten your passing. That kind of knowledge as well.
1: I know. Yeah, you want to be careful sharing that detail out with anyone. You know. <laughs> um, the other option then, as I said, is the annuity. Uh, not personally my cup of tea, but definitely for some people, uh, annuity is effectively where. You take the value of your pension, you give it to the life company like Irish Life, Zurich, Aviva, whoever it might be. Mm. And they say to you, OK, in return for that big sum of money, we're going to guarantee you X thousand euro per year for the rest of your life guaranteed. Um, the benefit of that is that you avoid the risk of running out of money mm. because you've a guaranteed sum of money every every year. But there are many downsides to annuities, um, not least of which is the annuity rate. So the percentage rate that the life companies pay you for your capital sum is intrinsically linked to European Central Bank interest rates. Um, so at the moment, annuities could be a good option because interest rates are high. So they'll give you a good, decent return on, on your capital sum that you transfer to them. Mm-hmm. But in times when interest rates are low, you know, you could be transferring hundreds of thousands to them and you might get a pretty measly annual income from them. Um, Mm -hmm. So you got to be careful about doing that as well. Uh, Potentially the worst downside of it is if you die with an annuity, nothing passes to your family. So if you have an annuity and you die for, let's say you die within, I don't know, 10 years of retirement, the money's gone. That's it. So even though you paid for a guaranteed income for life and you only live for 10 years, the, the life company effectively keeps the keeps the lump sum and your family don't get anything. Now there are certain provisions where you can get like, like if you die within the first 10 years, the life company will agree to continue to pay out um to your spouse up until year 10. And then after that, the payments stop. So for me personally, as an investor, I think RFs are sensible, but there are some cases to be made for, for annuities as well.
0: Okay. Um, What's your perspective on digital currencies and crypto? Are you in the space? Do you recommend the space? Um, what about European? We know institutions and and European Union is investigating rolling them out. Mm-hmm. What's your thoughts?
1: Yeah, look, I've 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 never been a crypto investor. Um, even, even during the heydays of 2020, 2021, when it seemed like all of my friends who had never Touched an investment before, where all of a sudden crypto experts. Mm. Um, I, I never I never took part. Um, in the hype, it was actually part of the reason why I started my own YouTube channel talking about finance was just to kind of, I suppose, um, be the voice of reason in the chaos and kind of come from a from an academic and uh, practical experience standpoint of mm. investing. Um, I suppose the, the reason why I don't invest in crypto is is simply because it can't be valued. Um. You know, we, we talked earlier about company stocks and the due diligence and the research that you have to do to satisfy yourself that it's a good investment. Uh, mm. A big part of that research is ensuring that the company stock is appropriately valued. So it's not overvalued. And um, if it is overvalued, your returns aren't going to be all too great. Um, but the great thing about stocks is that we can value them. We can value them because they are real, tangible, value driven entities that earn revenue. And cash flow so we can look at their cash flow we can look at their revenue we can look at their earnings and we can compare those metrics to the price of the stock to determine whether or not it's overvalued with crypto you can't do that crypto you know it is how it always will be and um, its price is determined pretty much solely by su- supply and demand and how the market is feeling about a particular coin at a given point in time mm-hmm. um and for that reason it is inherently volatile um it is speculation it's gambling i know a lot of crypto investors might might disagree with that perspective but for me um it is it is a gamble because crypto is a non productive investment it doesn't produce anything of tangible um good whereas you know companies obviously produce products and services and things like mm. that um so yeah my biggest issue is just it can't be valued i do again i 100% subscribe to the the benefits of blockchain technology as a whole I think we're still in the very early days of what's possible there, and I think there's going to be a lot of revolutionary changes in industry, um, along with AI as well. Um, but I always think I always think that whenever an investment opportunity comes with those revolutionary changes, investors just have to be really careful because just because it's a revolutionary change does not make it a good investment, and you always have to go back to the fundamentals of what makes a good investment. So, yeah, that that's that's my issue.
0: Um anything coming down the track you are concerned about 2023 2024 anything bothering you in the world of finance
1: Um I think for me I would just love to see more more innovation in the space um again I'm a long-term investor so I don't really get too bothered by short-term news And that's the beauty of it you know the stock market can drop by 5 or 10% tomorrow I don't really care because the money that I've invested I've invested for a multi decade period um mm. and it's money that I can not 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 that I can afford to lose, but I know that if that money drops by five ten percent for tomorrow, I'm not gonna have a short term need for cash to to pull out at a loss so um I think that's that's important to be of that mindset where you're not affected by things that might happen in in the short term for me anyway, I would love to see more innovation specifically in Harland um I think we're we're making the right steps um towards kind of promoting digital innovation a lot of this lies with the central bank of ireland and how willing they are to work with startups and encourage startups and the regulation that's applicable to them um so yeah my 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 main concern is that we don't see innovations soon enough that will help and encourage people to engage with their finances at an earlier age
0: mm.
1: when you're when you're looking at like gen z and how you know they're going to engage with uh, investing, You know, they don't want to pick up the phone to order a takeaway, let alone pick up the phone to talk to a financial advisor. Mm. So there needs to be the technology and the apps that can allow them to manage absolutely everything from their phones. And we're getting there because obviously, you know, DeGiro, Trade and 212, Trade Republic, all those great guys who are operating in Ireland now mm-hmm. are giving us access to the stock market. But I want to see the same thing happen in pensions. It needs to happen. I want to have an app where I can open my phone, control all of my investments. I'm not restricted to some legacy dated funds that are offered by Irish Life from 25 years ago. I want to see the most competitive financial products that are on the market today. And I want to be able to invest in them in my, in my pension. And my fear is that we won't get that technology until you know down the line.
0: Is that technology available in the United States?
1: It is indeed. It is indeed. Yeah. Um. Via Roth IRAs and all those accounts that have been integrated with Fidelity and all those kind of guys. Mm-hmm. Um. And that's that's a culture thing, right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Americans wake up in the morning, the first thing they do is check their check stock, stock portfolio. Yeah. So um, that's not how it is here. And I think that's how. That's where we need to go. We need to have it more culturally embedded in order for those technologies to be accepted and developed here
0: so the second part of that question is what are you excited about and i think you've answered it it's the possibility of technology Mm -hmm. for sure Um, sure. and if you could recommend one book on personal finances what would it be
1: it's interesting. If if we had had this podcast a year ago, I probably would have said The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham, um, which I still would recommend to anyone who's listening. Um effectively it's it's the the Bible on investing. Okay, so Benjamin Graham was Warren Buffett's mentor. Um hmm. he is the the father of of value investing and the concept of buying investments at a good price and sensible investing and you know, kind of avoiding the hype and all that kind of stuff. So The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham is a good recommendation. But I would actually recommend probably Thinking Fast and Slow by and Daniel Kahneman. Kahneman. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there might be a bit of a different choice. You might not see it as a finance book uh, yeah. directly, but the the psychological lessons I learned in that book have paid huge dividends in terms of how I view not only investing, but everything to do with like entrepreneurship or just how I live my life in general and how I react to my surroundings around me and being present in the moment and all this kind of stuff. So um, I think reading that book can have such a profound impact on all aspects of your life, including investing, that it's definitely a a read I would recommend.
0: I would agree. I read it many years ago. Um, Terrific, fantastic book. Um, So that's, that's a book on investing. A book on personal finances, slightly different.
1: Um, I don't really tend to read too much personal finance mm. books themselves because I spend so much time uh, creating content myself that uh, to 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 call it quits at the end of the day and read a personal finance book is quite intense. Um, again, I would I would just say one up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch. I know it's a, yeah. I know it's an investing book again. Um, but again, Peter does kind of touch on the whole idea of, um, or I believe he does anyway, of like lifestyle creep and ensuring that enough money is going towards your investments um, on a regular basis, um, ensuring that you're increasing the size of your investments over time. So, yeah, I wouldn't be the best for recommending specific personal finance books because I tend to read things that are outside of the space, but apply to it in different ways, like like Daniel's book. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah.
0: When you log in in the morning and you go to your desk, there's media outlets that you look at. Mm. Where do you go? Just give me one as a recommendation. Yeah,
1: Yeah. so I use Seeking Alpha uh, pretty much exclusively for all of my investing news, uh, research, um, all that kind of stuff. They are the largest financial news community um, in the world. Um, Mm. What's great about Seeking Alpha is that they have not only just news items, but also articles um, written by media contributors who effectively volunteer their time to to write analysis about different index funds and stocks and just different topics in general. Um, and you, you get both sides of the argument. It's not all like, for example, if if we're talking about Apple, it's not all like Apple is the best in the world, blah, 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 blah. blah. You'll get that, but you'll also get all the cons of why Apple isn't great. So you can take both sides and read both sides of the 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 kind of story and kind of decide for yourself what makes most sense. So, yeah, I would recommend Seeking Alpha. It's it's a cool
0: platform for sure. And lastly, Dan Malone, where can people find you?
1: You can find me at Malone Financial um, on YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, Facebook. Uh, my primary channel is YouTube. I do a lot of long form content where I talk about pensions, investing, mortgages, saving, more macro kind of issues, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And then on platforms like Instagram, LinkedIn, and TikTok, I do kind of short form content as well.
0: Dan Malone, thank you so much. This has been fascinating and really, really helpful. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Connor. Cheers.